Welcome to Old Treasures Made New, your devotional podcast on the go or at home, where we read the scriptures and reflect on them with those from the past. Today we're reading Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13, and then through J.C. Ryle's expository thoughts on Luke. Please take a moment to pause and to ask the Holy Spirit to bring understanding and to apply what we hear. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you, then, will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. The first event recorded in our Lord's history, after his baptism, is his temptation by the devil. From a season of honor and glory, he passed immediately to a season of conflict and suffering. First came the testimony of God the Father, You are my beloved Son. Then came the sneering suggestion of Satan, If you are the Son of God. The portion of Christ will often prove the portion of Christians. From great privilege to great trial, there will often be but a step. Let us first mark in the passage the power and unwearied malice of the devil. That old serpent who tempted Adam to sin in paradise was not afraid to assault the second Adam, the Son of God. Whether he understood that Jesus was God manifest in the flesh may perhaps be doubted, but that he saw in Jesus one who had come into the world to overthrow his kingdom is clear and plain. He had seen what happened at our Lord's baptism. He had heard the marvelous words from heaven. He felt that the great friend of man was come and that his own dominion was in peril. The Redeemer had come. The prison door was about to be thrown open. The lawful captives were about to be set free. All this, we need not doubt, Satan saw and resolved to fight for his own. The prince of the world would not give way to the prince of peace without a mighty struggle. He had overcome the first Adam in the garden, Why should he not overcome the second Adam of the wilderness? He had spoiled man once of paradise. Why should he not spoil him of the kingdom of God? Let it never surprise us if we are tempted by the devil. Let us rather expect it as a matter of course if we are living as members of Christ. The master's lot will be the lot of his disciples. That mighty spirit who did not fear to attack Jesus himself is still going about as a roaring lion seeking whom he will devour. That murderer and liar, who vexed Job and overthrew David and Peter, still lives and is not yet bound. If he cannot rob us of heaven, he will at any rate make our journey there painful, 
He cannot destroy our souls. He will at least bruise our heels. Genesis 3.15 Let us beware of despising him or thinking lightly of his power. Let us rather put on the whole armor of God and cry to the strong for strength. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. James 4.7 Let us mark, secondly, our Lord Jesus Christ's ability to sympathize with those who are tempted. This is a truth that stands out prominently in this passage. Jesus has really been, and literally been, tempted himself. It was proper that he who came to destroy the works of the devil should begin his own work by a special conflict with Satan. It was proper that the great shepherd and bishop of souls should be fitted for his earthly ministry by strong temptation, as well as by the word of God in prayer. But above all, it was proper that the great high priest and advocate of sinners should be one who has personal experience with conflict and has known what it is to be in the fire. And this was the case with Jesus. It is written that he suffered being tempted. Hebrews 2.18 How much he suffered, we cannot tell. But that his pure and spotless nature did suffer intensely, that we may be sure. Let all true Christians take comfort in the thought that they have a friend in heaven who can be touched with the feeling of their infirmities. Hebrews 4.15 When they pour out their hearts before the throne of grace and groan under the burden that daily harasses them, there is one who makes intercession who knows their sorrows. Let us take courage. The Lord Jesus is not an austere man. He knows what we mean when we complain of temptation, and he is both able and willing to give us help. Let us mark, thirdly, the exceeding subtlety of our great spiritual enemy, the devil. Three times we see him assaulting our Lord and trying to draw him into sin. Each assault showed the hand of a master in the art of temptation. Each assault was the work of one acquainted by long experience with every weak point in human nature. Each deserves an attentive study. Satan's first device was to persuade our Lord to distrust his father's providential care. He comes to him when weak and exhausted with 40 days hunger and suggests to him to work a miracle in order to gratify a carnal appetite. Why should he wait any longer? Why should the Son of God still sit and starve? Why not command the stone to become bread? Satan's second device was to persuade our Lord to grasp at worldly power by unlawful means. He takes him to the top of a mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. All these he promises to give him if he will but fall down and worship him. The concession was small. The promise was large. Why not by a little momentary act obtain an enormous gain? Satan's last device was to persuade our Lord to act presumptuously. He takes him to a pinnacle of the temple and suggests to him to cast himself down. By so doing, he will give public proof that he was the one sent by God. In so doing, he might even depend on being kept from harm. Was there not a text of scripture which specifically applied to the Son of God in such a position? Was it not written that angels should bear him up? On each of these three temptations, it would be easy to write much, but let it be sufficient to remind ourselves that we see in them the three favorite weapons of the devil. Unbelief, worldliness, and presumption are the three grand engines which he is ever working against the soul of man and by which he is ever enticing him to do what God forbids and to run into sin. 
Let us remember this and be on our guard. The acts that Satan suggests us to do are often in appearance trifling and unimportant. But the principle involved in each of these little acts, we may be sure, is nothing short of rebellion against God. Let us not be ignorant of Satan's devices. Let us mark lastly the manner in which our Lord resisted Satan's temptations. Three times we see him foiling and baffling the great enemy who assaulted him. He does not yield a hair's breadth to him. He does not give him a moment's advantage. Three times we see him using the same weapon in reply to his temptations. The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, Ephesians 6.17. He who was full of the Holy Spirit was yet not ashamed to make the Holy Scriptures his weapon of defense and his rule of action. Let us learn from this single fact. If we learn nothing else from this wondrous history, the high authority of the Bible, and the immense value of a knowledge of its contents. Let us read it, search into it, pray over it diligently, perseveringly, and unweariedly. Let us strive to be so thoroughly acquainted with its pages that its text may abide in our memories and stand ready at our right hand in the day of need. Let us be able to appeal from every perversion and false interpretation of its meaning to those thousand plain passages which are written, as it were, with a sunbeam. The Bible is indeed a sword, but we must take heed that we know it well if we would use it with effect. That is the end of Ryle's expository thoughts for these verses. Let us carefully consider what we have heard today, and may the Lord be pleased to bring the growth for His glory. In considering what we have just heard, would you prayerfully ask yourself and others the following questions? First, do we regard lightly the power and schemes of Satan? Are we aware of our need to put on the armor of God and to pray to be delivered from him? Second, when approaching the throne of God by faith, do we sense his smile or disappointment? Do we sense he understands and delights to help or that he is weighed down by our burdens? that he understands where we're coming from. Third, how familiar are we with these three favorite weapons of Satan, unbelief, worldliness, and presumption? If they seem small to us, is it not possible that we have tripped over these schemes? And fourth, O friends, how familiar are we with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, against Satan's schemes? Are we regular in reading, searching, and praying over the scriptures? In the areas where we are weak, do we have verses from the Bible quick at hand?